This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Cheryl Davis. Cheryl is a Senior Director for Strategic initiatives at Oracle. Uh, previously, she served as the director for cyber response policy at the U.S. National Security Council, where she led development of whole government responses to malicious cyber activity that threatened the United States and its allies. And prior to that, uh, she also served as a principal director for cyber policy at the Department of Homeland Security, where she worked to coordinate and unify the department's cyber policy positions uh, Cheryl, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. It is, in a lot of ways, the topic of the day when you're talking about federal operations, like real operations, not the budget and those kind of things, right? Where, you know, where, where the rubber meets the road. And you know, today we're going to uh, cover the executive order, the current state of play, and just talk about technology and approaches and strategies to meeting our security challenges. And so first let's just start and talk about, um, or you give us your sense of the security situation uh, that we are facing. Right. It's uh, to put it lightly, it's been a pretty tough year <laughs> for cybersecurity. Right. Just thinking back to the news cycle, um, even just since December, right. It's just been incident after incident, uh, and now ransomware event after ransomware event. Um, and, you know, sadly, it's it's not a perhaps new pattern, right? We've been dealing with cyber incidents for years. Um, but I think what you've, what we've seen this past few months is that just the scale, right? These incidents occur and the, the scale of the ramifications are just so incredibly large now uh, on multiple occasions, right? It wasn't just one company that was impacted, but then that scaled out to thousands of their customers or people who were using the software or, and whatnot. Uh, and the speed with which that happened and, and in cases, you know, the speed with which malicious actors were able to turn something uh, and, and go after um, quite a few other innocent right, users of that. Um, so I think that's quite concerning. I think also, you know, we've we've had the case in, in Colonial Pipeline, right? A physical world ramifications of a ransomware event, uh, and this is something that um, DHS and, and now CISA has has long been concerned with, right? And, and wanted to plan for, prepare for. Uh, and so in that case, right, we saw operational shutdowns, gas shortages, right, panic buying um, that, that all happened because of that. And now, right, the ransomware outbreaks with, with hospitals um, that's, that's impacting uh, their ability to provide medical services. So, you know, we're taking this all together. I think it's, it's really put a fine point on just how much more we need to be doing to improve our security and just how critical cybersecurity is um, to all of the services, right, to, to all of us um, and you know, critical infrastructure and just you know, our, our lives, right, our daily lives. Um, and I think, you know, the, the bumper sticker here is the status quo isn't working. 
Uh, and so now um, we need to make changes. And I think you know, the posture of, of the U.S. government, in particular with the EO and uh, you know, the, the many other uh, activities that they have going on, um, really hammers this home that it's it's time now. Uh, and I think on the industry side, too, right, we're, we're stepping up to partner with industry to, to help make the, the needed changes um, so that we can start shifting this this balance that we've found ourselves in. Yeah, I have to tell you, like the Colonial Pipeline, I mean, that actually hit home because I wasn't paying attention one day and I'm in the office and I got to go home. I live, you know, live out in Virginia and uh, gee, I need gas. And literally I went by six gas stations up route 29 before I found one that was still open. So um, yeah, the real life that hit home, like, wow, this is, yeah, this is just the tip of the iceberg in a lot of ways. And um, you mentioned the executive order in particular and the focus there that the status quo isn't working. So let's talk about the executive order came out in May and let's start at the top level with the key themes and then we can dive, dive down into it a little bit as well. Right. Having spent time in, in government, as you noted, uh, and, and worked on uh, various other executive orders, looking at this and, you know, all, if you poured it into Word, what, 15 pages, it's expansive. <laughs> it covers so many topics, but I think what you see is the government's attempt to not only address some of the issues that became um, very relevant as, as we were working through the after action on the incidents that have occurred this year, but then also on just kind of addressing some of the more foundational problems and starting to prioritize making those investments to modernize the underlying IT, to modernize uh, and refine the cybersecurity processes. Right. So it's it's all of the shift um, on their side, as well as on the industry approach. Right. So incentivizing better security practices, you know, software certainly being one um, and instigating this shift in, in our approach and hopefully right, taking the rising tide lifts all boats, um, that they will be able to extend this out to uh, not just federal government, um, but you know, to, to all. Um, so you, know, you have a little bit of everything, right? They're, um, they're looking at um, you know, some of the, the information sharing and, and contractual barriers right, that they found themselves um, challenged by whenever they were working to uh, in the immediate aftermath on the incident response. But then you have, as I mentioned, modernizing the underlying IT and cybersecurity processes. You have a, a re refined, um, they're accelerating their move to the cloud, right? They have said that this is important, right? This is, you know, if we're going to modernize and, and move forward, we need to do this. And so then the processes that allow them to do that, you know, are they, they modern? Are they actually working to allow them to access you know, all of this um, commercial uh, innovation and whatnot? So you know, there's, there's a lot. <laughs> uh, the timelines were, were certainly pretty ambitious, but, um, you know, it's, I think they're all needed things. They're, they're good things that they need to be doing uh, to get us into a better spot. You mentioned the information sharing. Um, one of the things it talks about is um, changing government contract requirements or reducing the barriers so people can actually talk to each other, government and industry, right? Think of it, they're actually talking to each other. Um, and then reporting of cyber incidents within 72 hours. You know, from your sense, you now you've been on both sides. You're, you, know, you work for the government, now you work in the private sector. How critical is that, the ability, breaking down the barriers and having us sort of Work, more working together or, or creating that trust between government and industry, which, you know, by its very nature sometimes is a little challenging. How critical of that is that, is, is that as terms of moving forward to try to address the challenge? 
you know, I, I think it is important. I think um, having a trusted partnership right, between government and industry is, is going to be important for cybersecurity moving forward. Um, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done on just what is it that we want that information sharing to look like. And a lot of the discussions, I mean, you know, we can talk about 72 hours, 24 hours, you know, whatever the time is, I think we need to go just a little bit of a layer deeper and say, what is actually going to help? What do you government, you know, what do you think you need to know, right? And, and industry, what do we think, you know, we would need from you government. So, you know, let's figure out what it is, what kind of information we want to share. And then, you know, the processes and, and the rest can kind of follow up from that. Um, but it, it is, you know, when you hear about and you see the various you know, pieces of, of legislation that are coming through and discussions of, you know, all of the different types of information that, that could be shared, um, I think taking a step back and saying, you know, should it, <laughs> um, because I right. think what could be detrimental to all of that, and this has come up in a recent hearing, is you're going to have so much noise now with all of this information sharing that what you don't want to have happen is that that signal, right, being buried in all of that and not being able to get to it. So, you know, I think there's there's a lot to be done, but I think it's it's helpful to take a step back and just on each side, right? What makes sense? You know, we ha we have our goal, right? It's it's to help uh, ensure that information is getting out to the right people. People are are armed and, and can secure themselves in the face of these threats. But how we do that, I, I think there's a good first step that that needs to happen. And you know, I think on the industry side, we're certainly um, looking forward with uh, our government colleagues to have that and, and really continue that conversation that's been going on for some time. Uh, yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned like the noise um, and the, the volume of the communication going back and forth and making sure it's actually effective communication. Uh, that seems to me that is going to be the key challenge. It's a good thing, right? But it's only a good thing if, you know, the inf information is useful. Uh, I, do you feel confident that folks are focusing on that particular piece of it as well? Like, you know, as opposed to just let's communicate. I think so. I, from what I've heard uh, from you know, government officials and whatnot, I, I think there is a concern that they don't want to be overwhelmed right, with pieces of information that may not necessarily be helpful. Um, and, and I think then you know, looking on the industry side as well, from my time in government, right, there were uh, quite a few um, <laughs> not great incidents. And, and in those initial days, right, you're just you're getting all of these things that are coming in. And it's like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> you know, what do we do here? What does this mean? And you need your your people right, who and your resources devoted on on figuring all of that out. So I, I think it's that balance of sharing the right information um, and ensuring that the resources, whether they be in industry or in government, are put towards the right things, right, as opposed to um, they're getting to the right information, right? They're not um, you know, tracking down you know, documents full, pages and pages full of information that may not be helpful when they could otherwise be um, placed on, on the immediate incident response. So, so there's lots of trade-offs. I think there's, there's lots of you know, really good discussions um, that, that need to occur in that. This is all about improving security uh, and improving our, our posture and, and ability to react, respond. Um, anything that's going to deter that uh, capability, we certainly want to make sure is not, uh, that that is not the solution that we implement. Right. Yeah. Effective communication. Um, and Cheryl, we're already, we're already up on the first break. So when we come back, we can talk about you know, the executive order calls out cloud services and, and we can talk about 
you know, what that means and, and, you know, what's it mean for security? How do we modernize? And, you know, just the differences in clouds and that sort of thing. My guest today is Cheryl Davis. She's Senior Director for Strategic Initiatives at Oracle. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf and Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and my guest today is Cheryl Davis. She is Senior Director for Strategic Initiatives at Oracle. Previously, she served as the Director for Cyber Response Policy at the U.S. National Security Council, where she led the development of a whole government responses to malicious cyber activity threatening the United States and its allies. Uh, before serving on the NSC, Cheryl was the Principal Director for Cyber Policy at DHS. Uh, Cheryl, um, when we took the break, I mentioned cloud and EO talks about cloud and picking up the pace of the government moving to cloud is one of the key responses and to, to, to the security situation I f- uh, we face. And I just want to get start there and talk about the move to the cloud and what does it mean and you know, your thoughts on you know, the EO's approach and, and how cloud can make a difference. Sure. Um, so just, you know, stepping back, uh, like you said, the, the EO is, is further emphasizing the government's policy that they need to move uh, and move quickly to the cloud. Um, and from our perspective, I will say that this is a, a very good strategy uh, for several reasons, right? And the, the first I'll touch on is, is modernization, um, and that flows into uh, security, um, which is you know, the, the challenge of the day. Um, but modernization, I mean, my goodness, uh, how long have we talked about um, IT modernization for the federal government, <laughs> the perennial challenge? So we did some, some digging on numbers, right? And, and we found that the federal government itself uh, spends roughly nine, $90 billion on IT each year. Uh, and when yeah. you dig into what they're spending it on, it's you know, purpose-built, highly customized legacy systems. Um, that are running these government functions. Um, And a lot of that budget, the majority of that budget is actually going to the maintenance of these things. And that's a security concern, um, right? Because these are kind of, you know, the the cylinders of of IT. Um, So how do we we break this cycle when we've been talking about modernization for so long? Well, you know, we think that the, the A barrier to modernization has been this kind of approach to doing custom, right? Um, Overlines on custom built tech, complex integrations, right? Comes with a very long tail for maintenance. Uh, then you're stuck with this heterogeneous environment that's not easily securable uh, and, and hard to update. So, from a modernization standpoint, um, you know, we would offer that you know the best way to do it is you know move to the cloud, commercial cloud applications. They're readily available now. They can deliver the functionality uh, for the government workforce. Um, there are multiple vendors, so there's there's not a, a vendor uh, lock-in there. And you have your cloud infrastructure, you have your your cloud applications. And when you look at cloud applications, um, it's it's a very quick way to modernize. Uh, and with that, you know, you also get that modern cloud infrastructure that it is built on, and that infrastructure uh, in the application can be secured at scale. So the patching, the updating, security uh, can be all uh, handled as opposed to kind of what we see now. So kind of talking about um, moving into security as an imperative uh, to moving to the cloud, right? I mean, thinking about the expanse and and the heterogeneity of the federal IT uh, ecosystem, and just thinking about patching alone, right? How do you find everything that needs to be patched uh, in such an environment and find it in a timely manner? And, And what we've seen 
in past incidents, right, you miss a patch and it can have pretty uh, catastrophic uh, outcomes there. So, you know, beyond just the deployment benefits and, and immediate ability to modernize, um, critically important is, is the value that cloud brings for cyber defenses because, you know, cloud providers are able to, unlike just, you know, an entity, concentrate scale uh, and scale resources, uh, expertise and engineering, and this minimizes the attack surface and the environments that they need to secure, uh, as well as the number of places an attacker can gain access. So now you have security at scale, uh, instead of having to secure, you know, many different islands of highly differentiated IT. And I'd say also important to that as well is the cloud provider's ability to capitalize on embedded artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities that not only optimize the performance, which is certainly a a very big positive of that, um, but can also do the automatic patching with zero downtiming, right? They can help prevent and detect and respond to predict, right? Again, sophisticated security threats, right? From the core to the edge. So, you know, in the end, the move to the cloud, the cloud providers can deliver for the government uh, and its users sophisticated layers of defense that are designed to secure its users' applications, data, and the infrastructure. So it's it's the step in the direction to start to shift the balance uh, in favor of the defenders as opposed to, you know, this consistent path that we've seen of, you know, uh, the offenders. That was great because when you're describing the current state and moving to the cloud, all I could think about is, I apologize, but thinking about G- the General Services Administration and, and, you know, talking to the leadership there back a few years ago, and they said they, you know, they had 174 different systems within their organization that they're all, tr- you know, to your point, all stovepiped, all have points of entry, all those kind of things. And it's a 3,000 person organization that touches $60 billion worth of government purchasing, right? So you could see how what you described could clearly benefit that organization and, and reduce the risk profile. But the other thing I want to want to go further on that, if you're an organization like that, like not all clouds are the same, right? Can you talk about some of the, how, how technology and the clouds are differentiated and what people need to think about from that perspective? Yeah, certainly. So, I think oftentimes when we talk cloud, we think exactly that, that all clouds are the same. Um, and even when we, we talk cloud, uh, a lot of times we're talking about the infrastructure as a service aspect as opposed to the software. Um, but the reality is that every provider is going to um, design and, and operate their cloud differently, right? There, there are similar characteristics, right, in, in scale and, and whatnot, uh, elasticity, but how they do it and how they engineer it from the ground up uh, is going to be different. And so, you know, what is it that you're trying to do? What's your security profile? you know, what kind of performance do you need, right? Kind of identifying those uh, and then kind of lifting the hood up on your cloud system. Do you want SaaS? Do you need, you know, an an infrastructure provider uh, and and finding the right one, right? Because that's... um, it, because the technology, like you said, is, is so highly differentiated. Uh, I think going into, you know, when you're ready to make the move to the cloud, having, you know, eyes open that, you know, there are many different options there um, that fall under cloud, um, but it would, you know, serve those folks well to really dig into that and understand, you know, how, how things are engineered and, and security as well, you know, how these clouds are secured, you know, are, are all certainly critical things. And, and there are a lot of options out there. 
Right. And, you know, as I understand it, and, you know, one of the commercial best practices these days is not, is a multi-cloud approach or is, is that kind of where, I mean, cause you, you may need different capabilities for different parts of your organization. It's not the same as having 174 different systems, <laughs> but it does provide you some, you know, greater capability across an enterprise. Is that fair? It's finding the the right solution for what you're trying to do, uh, right? And there are lots of lots of offerings out there, um, lots of providers. You know, whether you're talking about applications or, or infrastructure, um, it, it's matching up that what is it that you want to do with that that right provider. Um, so, the other aspect I wanted to ask you about is just the cost aspect of it. You know, one of the you know personal experience with our organization, you know we moved to the cloud and we've saved a lot of money, right? As opposed to trying to maintain our own infrastructure and the hardware. So, I mean, all that kind of sort of thing. Is that another big benefit for the government customer? Absolutely. Uh, because you know, we, we often talk about the, the, the CapEx to OpEx, right? It's, it's the cloud providers that are investing in, in all of that infrastructure. It is their workforce that is you know doing what, you know, their role is in, in security. Uh, and so it, it frees up, um, you know, uh, organizations, government entities and whatnot from having to make that to maintain it, right? We talked about that long tail of, you know, the majority of the IT budget going to that. Well, when you don't have to do that <laughs> or many of those things, um, you know, you're able to uh, have cost savings, right? And, and it's not just cost, it's your performance, it's your security. So all of those things together just kind of add up to a, this is the right thing to do uh, in today's environment. Well, Cheryl, we're at our break. And when we come back, I want to talk to you more about AI and machine learning um, and its role in cyber defense. And I also try to start to turn towards the software supply chain discussion of that as well. That's covered in the executive order. My guest today is Cheryl Davis. She's Senior Director for Strategic Initiatives at Oracle. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Cheryl Davis. She is Senior Director for Strategic Initiatives at Oracle. Cheryl served uh, previously as a Director of Cyber Response Policy at the U.S. National Security Council, where she led the development of whole government responses to malicious cyber activity threatening the United States and its allies uh, before serving on the NSC. Cheryl was a principal director for cyber policy at the Department of Homeland Security. And Cheryl, um, when we took the break, I mentioned in during our conversation, the last segment, you talked about and mentioned artificial intelligence, machine learning as a key tool uh, in the context of cloud, but I think also in the context of just cybersecurity, right? Can you talk a little about that and and what you're seeing and, and the strategies and what people are thinking about uh, with regard to leveraging that capability? Sure. Yeah, I think AI and ML, artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, they have to become a centerpiece of our cyber defense strategy. I think this is, you know, move to the cloud, you incorporate these capabilities, and then you can start turning the the tables here um, and actually have some benefits to the cyber defenders. What we can't have as our strategy is what you know we've talked about before. Like the, the status quo is not working. Um, our IT administrators, our cybersecurity professionals, just can't serve as the emergency responders after an incident. It's very hard on the workforce, and just you know the scale and the speed. Um, it, 
that's not going to get better, right? If something doesn't change. So we need to have that change. Um, and I think AI and ML is one of those things that can help us, um, but it has to be engineered into every aspect of the IT system. So where we see it, once it's fully integrated uh, and fully engineered into our IT systems, there are several benefits. Run, um, we've talked about security at scale. Um, and this is where AI and ML is, is so critical, right? Um, I mean, just thinking about kind of this exponential growth that we're going to have in internet connected devices, right? um, you know, jumping, you know, 40 billion right, in the next eight years and, and whatnot. So with our current processes, we can't scale to that. Um, and the only thing that we can do is start to address it with those, um, the AI and, and ML um, right, so that's going to make uh, security work faster. Right, they're going to be uh, able to do ensure that the information security policies and priorities are actually implemented and flagged when they're not implemented correctly. I think another important part about uh, AI and ML and integration in the cloud is this engineering out of human error. Right, we've seen a lot of cyber incidents over the years that um, has been uh, occurred because of, of human error. Right. And it's, you know, whether it's a whoops, I clicked on the link or, oh, no, I didn't find all the servers. Right. There, there are just simply too many opportunities um, for humans to make a mistake. So why not work on uh, engineering out um, that possibility and, you know, enter AI and ML? So I have a question about that. Just when you're talking about human error, and I get it. Like, you know, if you're going to be connecting billions of, you know, the Internet of Things, and everybody's connected and your car's connected and you know, this roads are connected, whatever, um, that you need artificial intelligence. You, you fundamentally, you're not going to have security unless you leverage this capability, right? So in that context, though, where, yeah, in, lever in getting rid of human error and leveraging workforce to use this, where does human decision-making come in, you know, along that paradigm when you're <laughs> utilizing that capability? Do you have any thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, so it's it's an important part, right? What what AI and ML can do is, you know, help with your policy implementation, right? I I remember way back when when I was an analyst um, and we were looking at some computer network defense uh, operations, right? We went into this room and there were you know a, a ton of computers, you know, with all the um, folks that were sitting at the computers just looking at all the pings on the intrusion detection sensors, um, and this was you know quite a few years ago. But, you know, thinking about that now, that's work that can be done better by machines, right? So if, if you do these types of flagging, um, you know, they, they learn the behavior, what's anomalous, what's not, you flag it, that takes the human from having to do that job um, and puts them in a position where they can um, almost do the more strategic analysis, right? So they actually have time to do that. They're not you know, looking through all of the logs and trying to find that. They can have that uh, activity stopped. And then uh, when something needs to get to their attention, have that additional context to find the more sophisticated uh, adversary activity. So, um, and, and what that actually does as well is, you know, we, we talk about, um, I mean, a day doesn't go by when you don't hear about the cyber workforce gap, right? You have right. 3 million positions need to be filled just this year, and that's only going to grow, uh, especially as we scale these things out. Well, if you have those, a, a lot of that like mundane work right, that's being done by AI and ML, 
right? They can take action, they can flag it. We can start closing the gap by these capabilities and then have your workforce actually um, be able to do the more uh, important value-added security work, um, looking at the context, you know, um, looking at what these malicious actors are doing. So it, it's it's a benefit, right? You, you get your human error out, you can start closing the gap um, and you can use your workforce just in a much more meaningful way towards better security. Right. Last question on, I just, you know, the development of AI and one of the things I've read about is like the need to have lots and lots of data to develop the capability to advance artificial intelligence. How are, are we addressing that? Cause you, you know, I read articles about, you know, China's they've connected everything. So they're getting all this data so that they can further develop their AI capabilities what what are we doing? I guess kind of. Yeah. To no, I I think that there um, and you know we have a lot of researchers who um, are, are looking at this you know and I think that that is certainly the the concern right to have better AI uh, you need lots of data um, and I think the positive thing is that you know with what is happening within um, the Office of Science and Technology and some of their AI initiatives. Um, they've recognized this. And so they do have initiatives underway uh, and efforts to ensure that um, there is access to data, data sets, you know, breaking down, you know, what are the barriers to accessing um, various different types of data sets. So it's certainly um, a, a work in progress, but it's, I think, something that's you know, trending positive, right? We have a lot of good attention and a lot of people who are working to ensure that, that we do have access so that, so that we can compete and that we can um, you know, have these wonderful AI systems that work efficiently and, uh, and fairly. Yeah. So let's turn to um, the software supply chain. And can you talk a little bit first about what the executive order calls for? Or envisions, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, you know, this has certainly been a hot topic uh, through the incidents of this year. Um, And and I would also add, in past years, software supply chain and and supply chain um, adversaries looking at software supply chain as a way to get in is is not a new concept. Um, but certainly, you know, as we talked about before, with just um, the, the scale and whatnot of um, the impacts of these incidents has been kind of front in mind of, OK, it's it's time that we uh, take a look at this. And so, you know, what I see happening in this section is it's the government saying, OK, <laughs> if you industry want to provide us government with um, software you know, services and whatnot, there's going to be a baseline of things that you need to do. It will be contractually based, right? If you want to sell, you have to meet these guidelines. And so it, it's taking this look at you know, as much of the ecosystem as they can handle right now. <laughs> um, and I think pos- in a positive note, um, placing NIST kind of in charge of developing a lot of these things. But, you know, what is that framework? What, what are the things that we need to do um, as a whole to ensure that, you know, as software is developed, we do it more securely, right? We're, we're changing the mindset from just, um, you know, developing cold new things, right? But having, we're developing this, you know, great innovative software that's going to help government, that's going to help others, but we're doing it with a security first mindset, really. Uh, and so, um, you know, we've, within it, right, NIST has had a, a whole bunch of activities that, um, that they've led uh, and, and they're continuing to work and, and gather industry input, 
Um, so, you know, all of these things are going to be wrapped up um, and NIST will eventually then come out with, with their guidelines um, for software development and, and software assurance. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's a positive step. I don't know that there's uh, anybody out there saying like, no, 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 <laughs> better security is, is not a good thing. Um, we've appreciated the opportunity to, um, you know, put some input in and, you know, see what comes out of it. And I think that um, the challenge will be, you know, as they come out with these frameworks, you know, software development and supply chains is a very dynamic field. Uh, and, and just like, you know, the technology today, as cloud comes online, right, as, you know, whatever the next thing is, um, whatever comes out, we need to make sure that we can reevaluate the guidelines um, and the frameworks and, you know, how government and others will be assessing whether companies need it um, so that we can ensure we're, we're keeping up and we're not putting kind of old guidelines and measures that uh, aren't keeping up with, with the bad actors uh, and practices and, and technology. We need some flexibility and flexibility too, I think, in um, how different companies will, will implement. But there's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. And we're already up at this break too. When we come back, I got a follow-up question about the software supply chain. And then I'd like to turn to, um, well, we've been, you've been talking about standards and developing new standards, right? So let's talk about the, the overarching certification regimes in the government and, and, and what those look like moving forward. My guest today is Cheryl Davis. She's Senior Director for Strategic Initiatives at Oracle. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Cheryl Davis. She's Senior Director for Strategic Initiatives at Oracle. Previously, she served as a Director for Cyber Response Policy at the U.S. National Security Council, where she led the development of whole government responses to malicious cyber activity that threatened the United States and its allies. Uh, before that, Cheryl served as a principal director for cyber policy at the Department of Homeland Security. And Cheryl, when we took the break, uh, we were talking about the software supply chain. I just had a follow-up question mm -hmm. for you, just talking about, because you made some great points about you know, that you got to have standards and, you know, and approaches to addressing uh, integrity of development of software and what the government are, and others utilize. Uh, but it's a dynamic world and things are always changing. So the standards have got to, you know, reflect that, right? Or they are the management of those. But one of the things that, you know, I'm always told is that, you know, software is a 24 hour day business, right? It, in terms of development, it's developed by teams around the globe whether it's, you know, first in the United States, then, you know, in Asia, then in Europe, then back to the United States the next day, right? And everybody's working on it as a team. It's just, it's the virtual world, right? That we li all live in right now. <laughs> Only that's the way it's been for a while in software. So how does the government look at that? Like in this context, what do you, what do you think they're going to be thinking about in terms of how to address that? Yeah, I, I think initially, right, it's, it's an understanding of, what processes are you using, right? Getting just to the bottom of that. And I think, um, I think kind of step one in all of this, and, and I see this, this evolving, um, you know, as, as the frameworks evolve and mature and, you know, as, as um, kind of government and, and it's how it wants to look at this and uh, understanding also matures. Uh, I, I think this, the step one is, you know, just kind of pushing out, like I said before, this, this mindset that, you know, 
every company is going to be different in, in how they do it and, and where they do it and you know how it all gets integrated together. Um, but ensuring that uh, across all of that, there is a certain level of um, security and, and assurance that's that's put on that, right? That they're they are taking that that security mindset of ensuring that security is baked in it at all of those levels. Um, and you know, I think understanding um, you know what's in your code, right, with software bill of materials is is certainly helpful. Um, and I think kind of to the Point where we were talking about um, you know, how government is going to uh, assess it, right? Every company is going to have to implement these these standards and, and guidelines differently according to you know who their customers are, what they're producing, how they're producing it. Um, but there has to be some level of flexibility in there as well, so that um, you know a, as new things come up, as new security issues pop up, as new threats, right? we can make the changes um, and they can make the changes and we're not, you know, certifying or, or whatnot to something, uh, some regime that's, that's five years old, right? This, you know, if, if software development is changes as rapidly as, as it does, you know, we have to be able to have flexibility in, in whatever the frameworks and, and how the government is thinking about um, how it wants its uh, products and solutions to be secured. So thing is just one you know, very dynamic <laughs> um, back and forth right continually evolving um, regime and, and and whatnot well you know and talking about evolving regimes like just to talk about regimes in general and certifications and um, you know uh, you know one of the things that um, that that I know we all see right is like all the various standards requirements that the government's put in place and different agencies or departments doing different things. Um, can you talk about certification regimes in general? I know one of the things that I, I like that you've said is that it's a tool, not a guarantee. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, that whole philosophy and approach and what the government's doing? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, in looking at the EEO, it's, it's certainly heartening to see that they've recognized um, and, and they want to work on FedRAP modernization, right? And, and the whole certification scheme is just to ensure that, you know, there is a certain level of, of security, you know, risk-based assessment that went into um, these products and to ensure that the government, um, you know, has access to them um, based on, on that risk assessment. Um, the challenge, though, is, right, uh, I think regimes in, in the past, it's, it's easy to get to this, you know, highly resource-intensive um, process where all of the prerequisites are, are front-loaded, right? And so you're attesting to that point in time. Um, and, you know, a theme of what we've been discussing is it's just how dynamic this field is, whether it be on the, the malicious actor side or the technology side. Um, and so you certify at that point in time, you're, you're meeting, right, the requirements and whatnot, but then what happens next, right? And so I think kind of being able to move these, these certification regimes and, and processes to more of this, this continuous process, this continuing mo continuous monitoring um, to ensure that, you know, not only do they meet all of the requirements from the start, but, you know, they're continuing to be um, secure and uh, adaptable and whatnot, 
Um, and, you know, I think that the challenge too is to not allow these, um, these processes to be a barrier to the government being able to access, you know, all of the in- innovation that's coming in on the commercial side, uh, you know, the latest security solutions, um, and to allow for all of these emerging technologies, right, the AI ML that we were just talking about, um, to be integrated and for the government to not be, you know, left behind because of, you know, some um, legacy requirement in a certification regime. I'd, yeah, it seems to me what you're saying, like what I get from your, what you've said is that the, you know, the, re, the certification regimes kind of have to look like or, or like the private sector in the sense that they're adaptable, like the technology, right? They're adaptable. They evolve as, you know, yeah, as the ecosystem evolves, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, speaking of evolving, can you talk a little bit about FedRAMP? and third ramp modernization. And I, and, I, and I asked that just also in the context of, you know, he, he made a great point about, you know, how these, how these regimes need to be flexible. Would it be appropriate too to take a look at the overarching, what the government has in place and try to figure out what makes sense. And so we're not duplicating uh, efforts or, you know, people as companies and government spending money on one standard when somebody else has another standard that you have to comply with as well. And, that sort of thing would just create some greater certainty in the market that will, I think, promote growth and, and, and innovation. Right. And, and I think there is some language in the executive order when they're talking about FedRAMP to look at um, some level of, of reciprocity. But, you know, in, in looking out at all the initiatives um, at the various departments and agencies, you know, there's there's a lot that are uh, popping up as to various um, different certification regimes beyond FedRAMP. Um, and, and what uh, agencies and, and whatnot are going to develop. And that's um, you know, certainly certainly challenging, um, especially if you know, it is going to be very arduous to go through a process for here and then do the same for here and then you know, do the same over here and there's going to be minor differences. Right? I think that the bottom line for any kind of provision of services, cloud and whatnot to the federal government is you know, they want to have access to the latest and greatest that is coming out uh, of their industry, but at the same time, it has to be secure. And so how do we make sure that this, you know, all of the, the patchwork certification schemes don't become patchwork, um, but how do we, how can we get to this you know, overarching process where we can, you know, tap in and it doesn't have to be um, uh, it, that all of these processes, right, are not going to inhibit the government's ability to to quickly access it and access you know, secure uh, and innovative processes. So um, it, it's encouraging, like I said, to see um, some discussion of, of reciprocity. So um, and and I think too, you know, even beyond um, FedRAMP and cloud, um, you know, in, in looking, we were talking earlier about uh, information sharing and, and requirements. Right. That's another uh, area where depending on, on who you are providing services to, there are different requirements, uh, reporting requirements. And so I, and you know, what happens with the uh, software supply chain right, and how government will, will um, attest to how you will attest to the government uh, as to how you're doing. Right? There's a lot of um, potential for um, many different you know, reporting and requirements and all these things. And so um, I, I'm hopeful that the government will take a look at that across all of these things to ensure that um, that what they're asking for uh, makes sense, is coordinated, um, and does not cause, cause resources to be expended when in 
places like uh, you know duplication whenever they could be spent on you know improving security for them. All right. So we have uh, Cheryl. We've got about a minute left. So I want to give you a chance. I promised to mention five G. <laughs> um, so maybe a little bit more than a minute. Uh, you know, I mean, that, I know you can't really cover much of anything, but how important is five G uh, and the government attention to it uh, moving forward? You know, very. Um, so our view on 5G is, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of discussion about the radio access network and, and open RAN, um, but we like to step back and look at 5G as this generational shift, right? It's the world's largest IT modernization project, right? We're replacing all of this purpose-built hardware with software running in hyperscale clouds. You know, we, we look at that as um, the opportunity, right? 5G standards were really written for IoT. You know, I know there's been in the RAN space, and I think why there's been a lot of discussion and focus on the RAN is it's kind of gone into you know, geopolitical debates, right? Trusted vendor, vendor ecosystem and, yeah. and diversity. And it's been great having government uh, attention and focus and, and support for open RAN things because I think they've been able to um, you know, express with their interest, right? It's a good signal to industry that this is important, that they want to move forward with it. Uh, and there's been a lot of progress there. And you know, from our perspective, that's great because you know, from our solutions, we want to be able to plug into whatever our customers want. Um, but on the other hand, too, I think it's also useful to recognize and, um, you know, I am encouraged that the government was was recognizing this as well. And I look forward to you know, their continued championing um, is on the application side. Right. And I think that's where um, we can really drive innovation and have leadership. And, you know, as we're deploying all of these 5G, the 5G infrastructure, like focusing on the what of what we want to do, I think, is, is critically important. And so efforts like uh, the Department of Defense's 5G pilots. They're great because they're they're taking this you know hypothetical what can we do with five G and actually implementing it, and so you know we're we're able to kind of figure out you know what what works what doesn't work, um, and you have this real test bed so that you can then inform your policy with that and it, you know the art of the, the possible is informing policy as opposed to policy then informing driving your right, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So it's a really exciting space. I think there's there's a big um, area for cloud and, and for uh, software and, you know, the, the security opportunities that we talked about uh, all day with cloud, right, that comes into play here. So, yeah, it's a big topic um, and I'm excited for, you know, the, the way ahead on this. Yeah, what I understand is just reading stuff is that software is like really going to be the next generation in a certain sense of make 5G really pop, I guess, for lack of a better term. So, uh, Cheryl, thanks for so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I want to thank my guest today, Cheryl Davis. She's Senior Director for Strategic Initiatives at Oracle. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, You need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps 
too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 smart bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 special edition smart bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.